Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Justin Cates, partner at Dumoulin Black, where he's a corporate securities lawyer. His practice is focused on advising companies through their growth curve on how to properly structure financings and help execute M&A transactions. It doesn't matter what stage you're at in your company, but a bad deal is a bad deal, and you need a trained eye on your team. The fact is that raising capital on bad terms can have immediate and long-term impacts on your business. That is where Justin comes in to provide that balance and help you negotiate equitable terms and ensure that you're on the right side with the regulatory bodies that oversee raising capital in both public and private scenarios. Justin and I also get into a shared passion of ours. That's the unique market ecosystem we have of public venture capital. Many people don't realize that in Canada, we have an outstanding public market ecosystem that enables early stage companies to access growth capital and provide a path to graduate their businesses to larger stock exchanges like the TSX or NASDAQ. Justin talks us through some of these topics, as well as how to approach potentially raising capital within our markets. It's something that I think we should all embrace and celebrate because it's unique to Canada and it's something that's drawing international attention from companies looking to list on our Canadian exchanges. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has also been a supporting member or a part of the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in our show notes. Now enjoy the show. On the line, I have Justin Cates, who's a partner with Dumoulin Black out of Vancouver. Justin, this has been, actually, it's been a bit of a long time coming, but I'm very excited about this. Me too, Corey. And, and uh, yeah, really, really excited to spend some time with you. I, uh, it has been a, been a long time coming, so appreciate you having me. Nice. Well, what I want to do is um, you've got a, a really interesting focus and a practice working with public and pre-public companies in, uh, well, and helping them finance and M&A and so on as a securities lawyer. And there's so many questions around there that I think CEOs and management teams need to understand and, and have more context and color for. So what I would like to do is I'm going to hand it over to you to give us a background on yourself and, and the practice that you have. And then we can start to build on that and, uh, and we'll fill the hour with, I think, some, some great conversations. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Corey. Well, yeah, to give you a bit of background on myself, I, I'm a securities lawyer and I, I practice in, in Vancouver. I'm a partner at, at Duma Black. You know, I've been working uh, in this field for, well, for my entire career. And, and I would say, you know, it's not everyone, you know, sometimes when you tell someone what a, what's a securities lawyer and they say, oh, do, you, do you deal with security on, on companies? But 
what I really do is, is I advise companies, private and public companies, or private companies that are planning to go public, uh, and advise them in connection with them accessing capital and whether they're accessing capital through private venture markets or if they're access, accessing capital through the public markets. I also help those companies that are going public. And I also advise these companies and right through their, their entire growth plan, I would say from, from early stage to um, larger public companies. And, and eventually, what's the goal for a lot of these companies uh, in connection with M&A when, when they are getting acquired by a larger company and, and having an exit? Well, I'm going to start with putting it out there that you've won a number of awards. When I was doing the research on your career for your legal work and it's really interesting to bring in into context of like talking about the lifespan of a company and then how that works with lawyers. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deviate from our questions right off the bat. Right. I, I, wanted, I want to hear your thoughts on that lifespan of a company from early capital raising and working with your lawyer and to make sure that you're, you're raising capital properly and preparing yourself if your path is for public venture capital or if your path is for private venture capital or how would you start and what, what advice do you have when, when you're starting off early? And I, you know, I'm not thinking about companies that are you know, mom and pops, but I'm thinking about those who have a clear intention of going to the markets and raising millions of dollars. What are some of the considerations they should keep in mind? Yeah, I know that that's dealing with, with early, early stage companies that are, that are looking to raise uh, you know, venture, venture stage capital. Let's, let's call it that as sort of a broad term. And, and that could mean you know, raising venture venture capital as as a private company, but but also as part of um, a strategy to go public. You know, if 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 a company is planning to go public right away, and sometimes they do, and we have a we have a great regulatory system and and a public market ecosystem that allows companies to do that. In, in my opinion, an ecosystem that's better than anywhere in the world uh, for accessing public venture capital. But a big part of getting prepared for that process of of going public. I would say is is really paying close attention to you know who they're raising capital from, how they're raising capital, and 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 what type of investors they they want to bring on at, and at what stages. So I, I think it's what's really important, and it's some of the decisions that these companies make at a very early stage can can have a big effect on their ability to be successful uh, as a public company. I, I want I want to dive in on that. I've heard some horror stories of companies who bring on the wrong investors, even at the wrong time, if they were still good investors kind of thing. But then you have mm -hmm. companies who bring on the wrong investors who have the wrong intentions, and they shape up a deal that is just, frankly, a bad deal for the company. You've probably seen your own horror stories, but what things would you say, like, you know, be careful here? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I mean, one thing I, I would say is, you know, not, not all capital is good capital. and and once I mean, once you're a public company, you can't control who's buying or selling your stock. But before you go public, and as part of that process, and when you're out there doing financings, you do have control over that. And, and I think it's really important to get to know the investors that you're bringing on, because you know your shareholders are really a, a part of your company. When you bring on a shareholder, especially at an early stage, you know they're they're part of the team. And the same way that you'd be, you'd want to be very careful about what directors or, or board members you, you bring onto your company. You also really want to be as, as careful about what shareholders you, you bring into your company. And you want, you want shareholders that are in it for the long run. You want shareholders that really want to help you either. And, and you know, some shareholders will be passive shareholders where they just, they hold on to your stock, but you want investors that are really interested in you building the company. 
and and not just interested in your stock as a as a product. Let's call it so. Uh, you know, some, some investors invest because they believe in, in you and they believe in your business and what you plan on doing. And there, there could be other investors out there that are just investing because they think that they're going to be able to make money selling your, your stock at, a, at an early stage. And, and um, raising public venture capital, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And the, the, the whole purpose of the public venture capital ecosystem is, is to build companies through, through all, all, all stages to, to eventual exit. And you, know, you want you want shareholders that are in in it for the, for the ride. There's two parts to that when I think about this is like the companies I think, and this is a bit of a tire pump for those who are communicating properly to shareholders. It's about telling a great story that's obviously true and accurate, but but shows the potential and and gets that emotional conviction of a shareholder to to buy into the longer versus just waiting till their stock's free trading. But have you ever seen or is there any ways? Um, and I've heard of some examples where companies and, and management teams were able to even negotiate with the existing shareholders, the very early ones, to extend their lockup provisions to, to limit the amount of free trading stock that would hit the market. Or, you know, is there is there anything there that management teams could do that you've seen? And perhaps it's a heavy lift or it's a hard negotiation, but it could end up supporting and and helping companies get longer-term shareholders. What have you seen? How can how can you avoid some of that, uh, just the hard sell when, when you go free trading? Uh, absolutely. You know, it's really, really good point, Corey. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I think it is really important, especially in, in the earlier, earlier financing rounds where, where you're raising at, a, at an earlier valuation. This, you know, is not typically something that you would deal with in your, in your sort of concurrent or, or your, your go public financing. Typically, that, that round is, is usually free trading to, to make it attractive to investors. But I would say your, your earlier financing rounds that are ideally done at, at, a, at a valuation that's lower than what you intend to, to do your go public financing at or your IPO, uh, I think it's really important to, to put uh, lockups in place for at least a period of time that, that you believe it will, will give the company enough time to build on, on the, the, the attractiveness of the company and build your, your market awareness so that right out of the gate, you, you don't have a bunch of cheap stock that could be getting sold in, into your market. So, and that can have a really negative effect. And I, I, I have seen, you know, companies that are very successful in their GoPug process. And, and you do see companies that don't have the same success as part of their GoPug process. And that, that's usually as a result of, of uh, a lot of the, the, you know, cheaper, cheaper rounds, uh, that, that stock being, being free trading right away and, and those investors, you know, selling into the market. So, so I would say, you know, you know, you, you want to really plan it out from from the beginning right until your go public financing. You never can fully plan it out because you never know as you build the company, you, you might be raising at a higher valuation and you might see bigger growth than you initially expected. And also the the current you know market, depending on from more from a from a macro level, how the, the overall markets are doing will will have an effect on how you price your your go public financing. So you can never plan it out perfectly, but I think trying to plan it in a way where you you've got a good runway where you know, having having early stage stock come out in sort of equal tranches over one, two, or even three year period, depending on on the round and how attractive your company is. But at the end of the day, uh, that that's a negotiation with your investors. And if you've got a lot of investors that are 
throwing money at your company and super excited, it might be easier to to negotiate a longer lockup. And just for just for context there, the the exchanges when we're talking public venture capital, they've got their lockups. Um, what are those timeframes and, and how's that work again? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, the one of the the lockups that's pretty much consistent amongst amongst all of the Canadian stock exchanges is is the the insider lockup. And and that really applies to any any directors, any directors, officers, and any 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 persons that hold more than ten percent of your of your outstanding stock at the time that you go public, all of those people would are are subject to uh, insider uh, lockups, which is typically uh, for and unless the company is a, a a tier one issuer on the TSX Venture Exchange, which I get into later, but uh, typically uh, that would be three years. Ten uh, percent is released upon listing. And then 15% is released every six months with the last release happening on the 36 month anniversary of, of going public. So it's a, it's a three year, uh, lockup. And it, there, there are, there are some differences in that. And for instance, the, the TSX venture has a, a category of, of tier one issuers where, uh, where those, those shares are, are released on a, on an earlier stage. I believe it's over a year and a half, but typically it's, yeah, it's three years rolled out sort of e- equally over, over that three year period. Right, right, right. And for your insiders there. Yeah. Now, you know, that kind of brings me into the next uh, questions I want to get into and the securities law in general, it's, it's continuously evolving. And I'm curious, what are the hot topics right now? Like what should companies and entrepreneurs really be aware of just in operating as a public company or when raising capital? What's like, what are the topics that you as lawyers are debating uh, at the moment? Well, you know that that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, the the, the securities markets are, are constantly evolving, and and you know every every year the the securities commissions and, and the stock exchanges are always looking at ways that they can best serve the public interest and and create a the the great ecosystem that we have right now in, in the in the Canadian public venture markets, and uh, you know that a lot of things evolve over time. So, so, for, you know, for, for example, the, the, what, what's always a topic of, of discussion, it continues to be currently is the restricted period that, that the securities commissions place on, on prospectus exempt financing. So that's, that's a, what we call a private placement. That's at any time that you're issuing securities under a, a prospectus exemption. So where a prospectus offering would be similar to what most people have heard of as an initial public offering, or once you're already public, there's 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 other types of prospectus offerings, such as a short form prospectus offering or a shelf prospectus offering. I, I won't get it get that technical because I don't want to bore the the audience. But <laughs> that could be the, for the next the, episode. Yeah, yeah. But the the prospectus exempt uh, regime that we have in Canada uh, applies restricted periods on on private placements. So uh, currently, right now. Uh, that that restricted period is is four months from the time of issuance, and and you know throughout at one point and and this is dating way back that that restricted period used to be twelve months for um, for a private placement and you know there's always there, there's there, there's always a lot of debate on on whether that that four month restricted period which we currently have is is really in the best interest of the company and in some ways it it can be problematic you know you you. In order to raise money in a, in a private placement, because it has that four month hold on it, you know, generally to incentivize investors, you've got to issue that, that you've got to price that financing at a at a discount, or in some cases, a significant discount to what you're trading at. And 
you know that that can sometimes hurt your market or bring your stock price mm. down depending on on um on what's happening and and then also it it creates a bit of a uh, of a a cliff at the end of that four month period where once you close that private placement you, you know that date's coming up where where all that that uh that stock is going to be coming free trading on the same date and and that can sometimes cause some some uh some pressure so where do you see those changes going and then uh, let's add a, a layer of complexity to this discussion too is i mean it seems that most private placements uh always have some form of warrant attached to them um at least in the current markets it seems where do you see that going uh, there's a lot of of market people that are that are that are are advocating to to get rid of the four month restricted period and and you know and and to to create um a market where where in those private placements that stock is free trading right away and you know in some ways the the argument is that well if if that stock is 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 coming out four months why not let it come out right away so that you can you can you know the the public the company can can understand it and get a better better feel for how much of that stock is coming free trading instead of a, a sort of a, a cliff that they're waiting for at the end of that four month period. So the, the the money that's coming in, they're they're investing at at a time when when they are excited about that industry and and excited about that company and and not in ideally you'd you'd have I think investors coming in uh, more for the long term as opposed to um, just coming in because they're getting a big discount. Uh, mm. to, to what you're trading at. It kind uh, of forces the hand of the company then, hey? With this restriction here, it forces the hand of the company to discount sometimes heavily, which is almost guaranteeing a, a sell-off in that cliff that you're going to face right off. Yeah, yeah, no, no, ab- absolutely. And, and, and I think if you're, if you're able to price at, at a more closer to what your market price is, I, I think you, you'd, you, you would allow companies to, to not have to, well, at least they'd have have an opportunity to price based on you know where the demand is and in a lot of cases mm-hmm. hopefully price closer to to what their stock price is trading at a- any predictions on where this will land i could definitely see the the market move towards um getting rid of the four month hold period down the road I, I don't know if that's i don't know if that could will happen i think if it did it, it'll be a while still um uh, because the four month hold has been in place for a long time but um but you know these markets are continuing to evolve, and and uh, be interesting to see where that where that goes. Okay, uh, and then and then your your question on, on warrants, you know, oh, the, yeah, you know, the the warrants. I mean, the you know the the what we we call unit financing because it would consist of a share and, and a warrant, and in some cases half a warrant. Uh, you know, the the warrant is a is a way of is another way of of um, you know enticing investors into a private placement and. It's it's used quite quite often in, in the public markets. It it um, you know warrant a warrant uh, operates similar to a to a stock option in that it it, it gives uh, the holder the the option to buy a share at a at a set price for a certain for a set period of time, and usually uh, those those warrants can be quite a, in quite a, an incentive for uh, for financing. So I mean if you're if you're investing if a you know stock price at a dollar and and the financing includes uh, a warrant, let's say at a at a dollar twenty or a dollar thirty uh, for for a two year period. It you know you by by investing in that in that unit, you're getting a pretty pretty attractive security depending on where the the market price is. And and so the warrants are definitely used quite significantly in in the venture, at least in the in the venture public markets. I think there's you can see how they can be a, a sweetener to a deal. I mean, sometimes there's too much of a sweetener. Sometimes companies perhaps 
maybe they feel obligated. Maybe they, they find themselves in just in a, in a high pressure situation, which they have to perhaps give too many warrants uh, or too much of a discount. And all of this brings us back into a, a discussion I like having in and around capitalization and cap tables and, and the whole recognition that once you give a share out, it's very hard to ever get that back. And yeah. the dilution effects of this can be hugely detrimental to a company. So what are the discussions like with your clients in and around this? I mean, is this something that yeah. is a hot topic issue f- for the strategy and for what they're raising capital or, or how do you, how do you approach that to try to make sure that you get the, the best for the company? You know, absolutely. I mean, really good question because, you know, pricing and, 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 and the, the structure of, of your financing is super important and always really, really important to think of, especially over the long term. You know, one of the, you know, warrants are, are adding a warrant to a financing as, as a sweetener. They, they are dilutive. And, you know, a lot of times it's what you see is, is companies that that's the reason why a lot of times companies will put in a, add a, maybe a half warrant to the unit instead of a full warrant. Uh, so it's a little bit less dilutive and, you know, potentially pricing that warrant at a, at a higher price to, to, um, or with, at a bigger gap to what you're pricing the, the units right. at. The other sort of important uh, term that you can add into warrants, which I see a lot of companies do, which I think is really advisable, is to add an acceleration provision into the warrant. And, and what that acceleration provision does is it, it'll typically say if, let's say your, your warrant is priced at a, at a buck 20, the accelerator might say, you know, if your stock trades at above, let's just throw this out there, buck fifty for for a period of ten consecutive trading days, you can you can give all of the warrant holders notice that they have thirty days to exercise that warrant once that has happened. Hmm. And and what that does is it allows you to well do two things. It it provides for uh, another another. It forces you know if your stock price sees. Um, uh, a, a big increase in which which we're seeing right now in a lot of companies because we're in a, we're in a I would say a, a bull market in the venture markets right now. But um, with that accelerator, you 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 force all these warrant holders to exercise their warrants, and that provides another uh, source of capital for the company and, and a great source of capital. Yeah, that's actually really true, right? And that, that I can see how that term and that provision could be a pretty easy thing to to get into the term sheet. It's not going to be a hard negotiation. And and like you Absolutely. said, I mean, it's, it, if you could force that or accelerate the, the conversion there and then take in that additional capital, I mean, that's uh, that's an excellent thing. I've seen a lot of companies put a lot of money in the bank after uh, the ability to, to convert those warrants. So interesting. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing um, that would be something that you would always be bringing to the table when you're talking to your clients. Definitely. I mean, it, it's definitely a, a something that that we we like to recommend. I think having that accelerator in there is is important, and um, and you know, otherwise you you have people just sitting on these warrants right until their their expiry, and uh, which which leaves a lot of overhang in the company as they're trying to you know build up their their stock price. So, hmm. uh, gen, generally, I, I would say always advisable to to put an accelerator on if if you can. Okay. You know what? Let's let's come back to something you and I are both passionate about. And it's the public venture capital markets and perhaps talk about them at a high level and we can dive into some issues in and around them. Like like you said, we've got this this really kind of special ecosystem in Canada where we have the ability to raise public venture capital. And I think a lot of people in the US and other countries 
uh, find this so foreign, uh, but some people are, or some organizations and groups are really starting to take a shining and uh, we're seeing more and more foreign listed companies on our venture exchanges, which to me, I think is awesome, right? So where's your passion come from and what are you seeing there? And, and um, what, are the, what are the positives and negatives you have from this? You're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, we have something very unique in Canada. I mean, we have a, a public venture capital ecosystem that I, I think is, is unlike anywhere else in the world. And what are the reasons for that? Well, I, I think the reasons for that are, well, number one, we have, a, uh, we have stock exchanges in, in Canada that, that uh, provide a regulatory system that, that people trust. You know, we have we have securities uh, securities commission a securities commission regime in Canada that is 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 well regulated, but it's regulated in a way that isn't overly uh, burdensome for the companies that are that are uh, operating in that ecosystem. And what I mean by that is that the costs of being a public company in Canada are significantly cheaper than being a public company uh, that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq, and where where you're dealing with with a, a securities regime in the United States, which is which is much more, uh, I would say, uh, costly than than in Canada. So so we've got what we have here is a regulatory system that's that's cost effective, that makes sense for earlier stage companies, and but also a regulatory system that provides investors with comfort in that market. And and what that does is that creates a huge retail base of, of retail investors. That are that are confident in investing in the venture public markets, and how did that evolve? Like, why Canada? Why why doesn't the United States have something like that? I mean, the United States has a di- much different you know regulatory system than we have with with the SEC and 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 the U.S. securities laws, uh, and they've got you know large larger stock exchanges in the United States that that are attractive for larger I would say larger companies, similar to what we have as well in Canada with the the, the big board of the TSX, but the cost of being public on those exchanges is, is enormously expensive and, um, and, and prohibitive. And, and so I, I think that's, that's what makes us, uh, that's why we have such a unique system here in Canada is, is we, you've got the protection for investors uh, with, a, with a good, good regulatory system that they can trust, but also a, a, a system that's not overly expensive for public companies to be public. Uh-huh. I want to I want to touch on that in the sense that um, when you talk about the costs of being public, I think that it's important that companies realize and management teams recognize that this is part of the cost of capital. If you're using public venture capital as a means to raise raise money, you better allocate a big chunk of that money to uh, to maintaining your your public listing, to making sure your audits are up, to you know all that kind of stuff that you have to do almost from a regulatory side. And then also to your investor relations work and maintaining the the, the relationships you have with the shareholders, albeit them, uh, albeit re- retail, and then moving up and ideally starting to get larger, high net worth and institutional clients. All of this factors into the cost of capital, and I think that it's important that companies compare this to the cost of capital, whether it be debt financing, if possible for them, or private venture capital. Because private venture capital arguably can be more expensive and more damaging than having to battle with a difficult market. No, no, that, that's a great point. I mean, and, and that, that, you know, is, I mean, the public venture capital is, is really, it's, it's kind of a, an alternative to 
traditional private venture capital and and um and which which is more common in 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 the US and you know especially a lot of early stage companies and in in Silicon Valley and 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 sort of across the throughout the US that that don't choose to go public because well because of the cost which I was t- touching on earlier so they so they access uh you know venture capital and 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 a lot of times you know that that venture capital can be expensive and and restrictive on your business and and um you know there there's a lot of uh of venture capitalists or, or funds out there that that will ask for uh pretty restrictive shareholder agreements that can put a strain on on management to um and prevent management from having the freedom to run their company uh, as they as they want to run it and you know it's not to say that you don't have that same oversight in in the from the stock exchange because you do but but at least you have the freedom to to run your company as you want to run it and and I think uh, you have a, a greater level of freedom running running your company uh when when you're public uh, I mean you have you have much more disclosure obligations than you have as a private company but you can you generally have a fair amount of freedom to run your business according to your vision and um yeah. and not a, according to the the vision of the private equity or the venture capital funds that are that are funding you so yeah and they're it's, sitting it's, on it's the an, boards and pulling the strings yeah yeah absolutely so it's it's a you know it's a it's a it's a great alternative it, it's it is it you know both options come with positives and negatives um but it, it is a it's a real it is a real alternative that we have in canada and and you know other countries don't have that that type of option and you know we're, what we're starting to see more and more are companies outside of Canada that are choosing to to list here in Canada because because of that because we've just got this great public venture capital ecosystem up here. Let's let's go down that path, Justin. Let's say I'm listed or excuse me not listed but I'm a private company uh in fact I I know of a of an interesting group out of Israel and they're looking to uh list their companies in Canada. What do you do? Who do I phone? How does what's the process? Well, uh, you can call me. <laughs> um, no, you know the, the the process of for international companies choosing to list in Canada, and and I would say you know what what we typically do in those cases, and a lot of this is is driven by by tax advice, which is not what I do. So you know we'd put you in touch with a a good tax tax lawyer or accountant that can that can advise you on a on a proper structure, but. Putting aside the, the the typical tax structure, what we typically see are are these companies would it, would incorporate a, a company in Canada, so they would they would essentially reorganize their business into Canada, and, and I don't mean moving their head office or anything like that, but but creating a a, a parent a parent Canadian company mm. that would would control or, or would hold the your, your operating entity, which which might be. Uh, your company in Israel or, or the United States or Australia or whatever, whatever jurisdiction you're in. So you'd essentially create a, a parent co that's that's based in Canada, and that parent co would be ultimately the company that would go public. So all of your shareholders of of your your Israel company or your your U.S. company or or where, wherever your company is based would exchange their shares for for shares of that Canadian company, and, and so everyone would 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 hold shares of that Canadian company and. And um, and you you continue to to have a, a subsidiary is what we call it in, in an operating subsidiary in, in whichever jurisdiction you're you're operating in, and and okay. that Canadian company would then apply to list on the stock exchange and do that by by way of IPO or or uh, RTO or, or different different methods of going public. 
Yeah. And so I can see there, I mean, that's where you'd run into some tax issues and understanding, I mean, this isn't your, your forte of, of the tax side, but uh, every jurisdiction is probably going to be different with tax treaties and all that. But once, yeah. once you've set up this Canadian entity and effectively it becomes the parent co, and the idea is that there's an exchange of shares for uh, parent to sub kind of thing. And, and then you move on and you want to move into, onto the venture market and you want to raise capital. What then? Because, I mean, there's a lot of uh, discussion. I mean, uh, IPOs aren't really in favor when it comes to the venture exchange or the, the CSE. So we could do a, a reverse takeover or a CPC uh, transaction. What then? How do you go about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, all the, there, there's, there's positives and negatives of, of both ways of, of going public. And, and uh, you know, I'd say a lot of that would depend on, first of all, you, you know, it's typically the reason why you'd want to go public would be to have greater access to capital and, and you know, you have access to public capital. And, and I won't get into all the reasons for that. But, but you know, a big part of driving that is, is finding uh, investors that, and whether that's, whether these are you know high net worth investors or an investment bank that that you're wanting to work with to to help you raise capital, uh, and a big part of that would be you know opening up those discussions with who your your investors or 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 the, the people that are helping you raise capital as part of your your going public process, coming up with a, a structure that makes sense. So you know a lot of times the the reverse takeover process that we have in Canada is basically where you you have a, a public shell company that that you know may have previously uh been uh you know a prior business that didn't work out that failed and and you can use that you can sort of recycle i guess you would say that that public company to to vend in your business so we call it a reverse takeover because what really happens is that public company uh, let's say that, that public shell company acquires your company but all of the shareholders of your company then become shareholders of that shell company and, and hold the majority stock of that of that shell company. And that's that's why we call it a re- reverse takeover. In addition to that, there's there are uh, shell companies on, on the TSX Venture Exchange that are and the TSX actually that are that are set up purely uh, as shell companies. There there's the there's the capital pool program uh, in you know, the TSXV and, and the SPAC program on, on the TSX. Where essentially you've got pools of capital that are raised into a public company that it's where its sole objective is to go out and find a, a, a target business to acquire. So um, long story short, I mean, really, I, I think you need to look at how you're raising capital and, and I think discuss that with the, the people that are helping you raise capital in terms of how, how you choose to go public. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to jump in with a question here. Um, yeah. When you're, when you're looking to get guidance on this, uh, who should you trust the lawyer, the banker, or the advisor, the, the group that says they can raise capital for you? Well, I, mean, I think you want to trust that all the groups that you're working with. I think that's really important because you, you don't want to be working with a financial advisor or investment bank that you don't trust because, you know, at the end of the day, they are your partners and, and, you know, you, you really, you want that to be a long-term relationship where, you know, they might be helping you in your initial seed financing, but they also might be helping you a year or two years down the road where you're looking to raise it, do a larger financing. So I think it's really important to have a good relationship that you, where you really trust. And, and um, you know, as far as your, your legal advice is concerned, I mean, we're, we are, as lawyers, governed by the law society. So, 
you know, we are, we are, it's in our, it's part of our job that we, we have to always be acting in, in your best interests and always yeah. keep that in mind. So you know, man, I'm figuring out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but, I do want to say though, I think it's important that when going public or when looking to do a reverse takeover um, as a management team into a public entity, the groups that you bring on, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's very important that the relationships built there should, should also come with the due diligence that the management team does on the financing partners. Like, you know, if they're, it's a broker at a reputable firm and they've done a lot of certain kind of deals because they've got a, a large retail base of investors who understand and participate in a certain kind of deal, you know, dig into those, see the track record there, or if it's a, an investment bank or if it's a, um, you know, kind of a capital advisory group, like really you got to dig into the due diligence of, of who those people are and what their past deals were. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a you know, really great question to ask. As uh, you know, as part of your your due diligence process when you're deciding on who you want to partner with when you're going public is, you know, finding a, an investment bank or an advisor that 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 ha- has had an experience in a, in the same industry and has had success successful uh, history. I think that's really important. So, very important to do your due diligence and and um, because you know you, the advisors that you're working with they're they're in the business to to make money and and um, so you, you need to. You, know, you, you do need to do your diligence and, and make sure you're getting into bed with a group that you that you want to be working with. So, another question for you is: um, legal teams don't come cheap. It's it's imperative that you have a good legal team. But how and and from your experience, like how can a, a management team maximize their relationship with you? And where have things like you just re, you you found a cadence and and a, a team that you just gelled with, and it was you know there was a lot of value generated between. The, the synergies of the two of you versus perhaps yeah. other clients where it's, it's been costly on both sides for whatever reasons. I'd like to take a quick moment here to say thanks again to Olympia Trust Company for supporting this podcast. They've been supporting both public and private companies in Western Canada for well over 20 years now, and they take pride in their personalized customer service. Now back to the show. I always say, I mean, I think there's two key key ways that I, I think you can maximize the, the experience you have with your legal counsel and, and to make sure that it's an, as efficient a process as possible and to get the best service for, you know, what you're paying for. And, and I think, number one, it's really important to have someone in your management team, I think, that's organized. That might not always be the CEO because the, the CEO is focused on building the business. It's good to have someone on, on the team that in some cases, it might be the CEO, but it in a lot of cases, it, it, it helps to have uh, uh, someone on that management team that's organized and 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 that can be can keep all of your your you know documents organized and, and communicate well with your legal counsel because because that that you know a company that's that's super unorganized and and it creates more work sorting through if if there's if you're working with a, a mess and you've got to sort through that 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 can create more work so I think just having someone on your team that's that's you know really organized and is, is important and because you know running a public company you have to be organized it's not the same as as a private company you you've you've got quarterly financial statements that you get filed every quarter you've got you've got your your year end statements you got to work with your auditors on so it's there's you've got all your news release disclosure and and all the securities laws that you need to comply with part of being a public company so important to have someone organized and i would say number 2 is you know, keep work with your lawyer, keep them in the loop. You know, a lot of times I, I find there's some companies that, that, you know, tend to, 
not tell not you know they, they could be there could be a, a deal brewing or a transaction that they're working on or a financing and and they 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 you know don't disclose anything to their legal counsel and they 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 try to sort of do everything in house and without at least communicating with the legal counsel and I think that's where um, that's where companies get in trouble where they're they may be trying to save on costs by by doing these things themselves and what what can end up happening is you end up having to get your legal counsel to fix a, a bigger problem that mm. could have been um, uh, fixed at the outset or, or at least, or, or entirely prevented at the outset. Um, so, so I would say, you know, communicate with your legal counsel and, and keep them in the loop because uh, there's things that companies would, wouldn't be aware of that, that, that your legal counsel will, will catch and, and at least keep your, your um, plan ahead and, 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 uh, and, and help with your sort of, strategy as you pursue those those various transactions something that i think about there and a question is when financing a company you know these issues can arise and like you say perhaps a company doesn't bring you in soon enough and goes down a path a little too far what kind of terms have you seen in agreements where you look and you just shook your head and you're like what what happened here like why why did you do this <laughs> and you know what can be avoided well, yeah, I mean, there, there's all sorts of uh, issues that you can get into. I mean, you know, there, there's there's you know, a lot of times companies will go out and they'll sign a term sheet or an LOI, and and you know, from a from a bird's eye view, it looks you know looks just like a standard LOI or a standard term sheet. But there's there's terms that go into those LOIs or, or term sheets that are binding. You know, it's not you know a term sheet or an LOI may have a bunch of non-binding terms in it, but but there's there's there are binding terms in there, and typically that would be exclusivity, due diligence provisions, uh, break fees, things that you might not think about when you're all excited to to get the deal done. You know, those are the kind of things that your legal counsel will catch and and can can help you down the road. And I have seen deals where LOIs or, or term sheets get signed that that can get companies into trouble. And, and even the non-binding terms, you know, deal, deal terms that you put into a term sheet or LOI, once they're in there, even though they're non-binding, it really is going to hurt your negotiating position when you're looking to finalize your definitive agreement that it will make those terms binding when you've already put them into the LOI or term sheet. So so I think, yeah, really important to get your legal counsel involved at, at the beginning. I think that's a really good point is, is like, you know, that uh, perhaps you should be looking at your your initial term sheet as pretty much what would be the final term sheet in the sense like, you know, don't be loosey goosey about this thing. Make sure it's as dialed in as possible because you don't want to find yourself behind the eight ball when you're negotiating or trying to negotiate out of a certain term that perhaps you just kind of slapped in there and not should have been a little harder in negotiating early on. Absolutely. Getting those terms out at the beginning in, in that term sheet and that LOI is, is really important. And, and, you know, that that could be as simple as as you know putting in a like we talked touched upon earlier you know putting in or, or re- removing a a break fee for instance that that can really change the the overall uh, deal is you know things like that are are important so yeah I, I think yeah work work with your work with your counsel right from the get go and and understand what what your your options are and and what what opportunities you have to put into that into that LOI. What I take away from it is get involved early with your lawyer so you don't it's gonna be more costly otherwise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice. What final thoughts do you have? And I mean our our conversation, I think we went down the path of really, I mean, exploring some of the public venture capital and some of the high level issues that that new management teams come into the public markets can can run into. 
Uh, any final thoughts for, for the audience being those CEOs and management teams of uh, what they should look out for when, when exploring um, raising capital in public venture capital markets? Yeah, you know, I, I always say, you know, when you're planning to, to go public, you know, be ready for, you know, there, there's, you're really, you're, you're running two companies. You know, you've got to focus on running your business, but you've, you've also got to focus on running your, your, the public market aspect of your business and, and be ready for that, you know, and, and have a team in place on your team that, that's, that can help, you know, for instance, as I was talking about with, you've got to have the right part of the people and the right pieces of that team that can help execute on your business and, and the right pieces in your team that can help make sure that you have a, a successful public listing and, and continue to, to have success as a public company. And, you know, number two, I would say, you know, really, really try to plan out what your, what your capital needs are and, and really think about you know, how much, how much capital you, you're going to need over the next couple of years and, and, and really try to plan ahead because you never know, you know, the, the markets are volatile and they're cyclical and there, there's good times to raise capital and there's, there's bad times to raise capital. And, and, you know, you don't want to be running out of money in, in the middle of a bear market. So, you know, having a nice runway of capital is important and, and so that you can, you can choose to raise capital in a hot market and, and, and you can keep that capital to, to ride out a, a bad market. And, and you know your stock price is going to dip. It will have it will have downturns when there's a downturn in the market. I mean, in a, in a bad market, as we all saw in March, everything goes down, and and you don't want to be one of those companies that's starving for cash in in March. And mm. so I, I think planning ahead with with raising, building up a nice war chest that can get you through those those bad times. And when you're in a good market, get you know take take the money, you know build up that that war chest so that you're prepared for for when, uh, for a rainy day. <laughs> yeah. My thought and advice has always been like, take the money when it's there. Like, don't just freaking take it. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, yeah, I'll take that. Justin, how can, yeah. um, how can listeners, uh, follow your work or, or get in touch with you? My profile is available on, on, you can check me out on LinkedIn and, and, you know, also on our website at doomandblack.com. You know, I'm always, um, always really, really what, what, what makes me excited is working with, hungry entrepreneurs that, that are really looking to, to build something. I, I, I love, uh, I love the, the business and, you know, always, always interested in meeting new entrepreneurs. So feel free to check me out on our, on our website. Well, Justin, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks a lot, Corey. Great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.